Thanks, Jordan. Hey, everyone. How are you? So good to be back. Uh, like Brad said, my name is Steve. And uh, yes, I'm embarking on the craziest, well, maybe not the craziest, but certainly the most difficult journey uh, maybe that I've taken in a while, and that is I am planting a church in the Twin Cities, and it's going to be and has been a lot of fun and uh, quite challenging. But, um, but that's, that's part of what it means to jump into the river, right? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen, and it's going to be sweet. So uh, two words uh, as I begin, and the first word is grace, and the second word is peace. Grace and peace to you, brothers and sisters. Grace and peace was how uh, Paul started so many of his letters, and I wonder uh, if he did that because he knew that those two things are sort of the anchor points of the church. Grace, saved by grace, sustained by grace, which is a gift of mercy from God through Jesus. So Paul starts every one of his letters almost everyone with grace. Always understand that you're sustained by grace. And then peace, this sense of wholeness that even in the midst of crazy, troubling times, you maybe have just lost your job or you may be about to plant a church or your marriage may be falling apart or the economy maybe isn't doing what you want it to do. And here comes this word, in all those circumstances, peace. May you find wholeness and rest in the person of Jesus. So I say to you, and I come with grace and peace. No matter what you're doing right now, no matter what you're in, no matter how far you are from God or how close you are to God, the words for you today are grace and peace. And we could probably just pray and be done. Uh, but I do have some more thoughts. Uh, so uh, we're in this series called Tough, and I love it that it's called tough because it, it puts a, a really honest spin on marriage and parenting. So many times we get the press that if, you, you know, if you're really following Jesus, your marriage should be really perfect, free of fighting, free of any anxiety or struggle. I mean, if you're a parent, if you're a Christian parent, you should be having your quiet times in the morning as well as raising these beautiful children who grow up to be in a beautiful people in the world and never have any problems. And it's just not like that. It's tough. So last week, Brad talked about marriage. Today, I want to talk about parenting. Uh, I have three boys. Isaac is almost seven. And then I have twins that are five. So uh, if you have boys in your house, and if you have three boys in your house, uh, our house is always loud, it's always chaotic, there's always fights happening, and there's Legos all over the place that you, you know, break your feet on at every, at every moment. And uh, about a year and a half ago, um, I, I was, my, my wife had this eye surgery, which took about four or five days to uh, recover from. And so I had the boys nonstop and like, you know, uh, that, that, that to most maybe moms is no big deal. To dads, that's, it's like four days of absolute crazy town, right? Nonstop frozen pizza, uh, as many movies as you can handle, but it's still really stressful. And so about day four, my sister-in-law came in and said, Steve, you got to get out of here for a couple hours, man. She just saw my nerves fraying actually. And so I, I, I went to this coffee shop and I wrote a blog post. And the blog post was called, To Parents of Small Children, let me, let me Be the One to Say It Out Loud. 
And I, I remember crying as I was writing this because it was just my, my lament, actually, of how hard it was. So I want to read this, this post to you, if, if you don't mind. Um, a lot of people read this and shared it, and I think because it takes on our perfectionism culture by the throat and tries to throttle it until it's dead. So here's, here's the post. I am in a season of my life right now where I feel bone tired almost all of the time. Ragged, how am I going to make it to the end of the day? Eyes burning, exhausted. I have three boys, ages five and under. I'm not complaining about that. Well, maybe I am a little bit. But I know there are people who would give anything for a house full of laughter and chaos. I was that person for years and years. The pain of infertility is stabbing and throbbing and constant. I remember allowing hope to rise and then seeing it crash all around me month after month after month for seven years. But right now, in my actual life, I have three boys, ages five and under. And there are many moments where they are utterly delightful. Like last week when Isaac told my sister-in-law that my daddy has hair all over. <laughs> or when Elijah put a green washcloth over his chin and cheeks and proudly declared, Daddy, I have a beard just like you. Or when Ben sneaks downstairs in the morning before the other boys do, smiles at me and says, Daddy and Ben time. Oh. But there are also many moments when I have no idea how I'm going to make it until their bedtime. Their constant demands, their needs, and the fighting are fingernails across the chalkboard every single day. One of my children is for sure going to be the next Steve Jobs. I now have immense empathy for Steve Jobs' parents. Because this child of mine has an unfathomable, unfathomably precise vision of what he wants. Exactly this way and no other way. Sometimes it's the way his plate needs to be centered exactly to his chair. Or how his socks go on. Or exactly how the picture of the pink dolphin needs to look. With brave eyes, daddy, not sad eyes. He is a laser beam and he's not satisfied until it's exactly right. I have to confess that sometimes the sound of his screaming voice actually makes me hide in the pantry. <laughs> I have done that before, and when I do, I will neither confirm nor deny that I compulsively eat chips and or dark chocolate. <laughs> there, are, there are people who say this to me. Oh, you should enjoy every moment now because they grow up so... I usually smile and give some sort of guffaw, but inside I secretly want to hold these people underwater for a little while. <laughs> Not forever, just until they panic a little bit. Now, if you have friends with small kids, especially if your kids are now teenagers or if they're out of the home, please, and this is bolded, vow to me right now that you will never, ever say this to them. Not because it's not true, because it really, really, really doesn't help. We know it's true they grow up too fast. Of course it's true. But feeling like I have to enjoy every moment right now doesn't feel like a gift. It feels like one more thing that's impossible to do. And right now, that list is way too long. Not every moment is enjoyable as a parent. It wasn't for you and it isn't for me. You've just obviously forgotten. <laughs> and I can forgive you for that. But if you tell me to enjoy every moment one more time, I will need to break up with you. So if you are a parent of small children, you know that there are moments of spectacular delight and you can't believe you get to be around these little people. 
But let me be someone who says the following things out loud. You are not a terrible parent if you can't figure out a way for your children to eat as healthy as your friend's children do. She is obviously using a bizarre and probably illegal form of hypnotism. <laughs> You're not a terrible parent if you yell at your kids sometimes. You have little dictators living in your house. If someone else talked to you like that, they'd be put in prison. <laughs> You're not a terrible parent if you can't figure out how to calmly give them appropriate consequences in real time every sing for every single act of terrorism that they so creatively devise. <laughs> Uh, you're not a terrible parent if you'd rather be at work. <laughs> this is just knowing laughter. I, I, you're not a terrible parent if you just can't wait for them to go to bed. You're not a terrible parent if the sound of their voices sometimes makes you want to drink and never stop. <laughs> you're not a terrible parent. You're an actual parent with limits. You cannot do it all. And we all need to admit that one of the casualties specific to our information-saturated culture is that we have skyscraper standards for parenting these days. And when we feel like we're failing horribly, if we feed our children chicken nuggets and watch them, let them watch TV in the morning. I'm coming to believe that one of the primary reasons we're so exhausted is that we are oversaturated with information about the kind of parent that we should be. So maybe it's time to stop reading the blogs that tell you how to raise the next president who knows how to read when she's three and who cooks, not only eats her vegetables. Maybe it's time to embrace being the kind of parent who says sorry when you yell, who models what it's like to take time for yourself, who shows up and decides to turn off your iPhone from time to time when you get home, who asks God to help you become a better version of the person that you actually are not for more strength to be a perfect parent. So the next time you see your friends with small children with that foggy and desperate look in their eyes, order them a pizza and have it sent to their house that night. Or show up to their house on a Saturday morning and offer to kidnap their kids for, for a couple of hours. Put your hand on their shoulder, look them in the eyes, and tell them that they're doing a good job. And don't freak out if they start weeping uncontrollably. Most of the time we feel like we're botching the whole deal and our kids are going to turn into horrible criminals who hate us and who will never want to be around us when they're older. You're bone tired. I'm not sure when it's going to get better. Today might be a good day or it might be the day that you lost it in a way that surprised even yourself. Breathe in. Breathe out. You're not alone. So my message to you, if you are a parent and you're losing it, and you're freaking out, and you don't know how you're going to make it to bedtime, or the next week, or until they're in school full-time, or until they leave for college, or until they get out of your house again after having gone to college and moved back home. <laughs> what I want to say to you is one of the journeys of being a parent that I think is the journey toward Jesus is the journey of letting go of perfectionism and embracing the courage to be who you actually are in your actual body with actual limits, clinging on to the God who wants to bring you grace and peace in every moment. Amen? So, turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 10, one of my favorite verses or passages. It's not ostensibly about parenting, but it really is in a very subliminal and beautiful way. So the context behind this story is that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem 
but he wants to stop by some of his very dear friend's house. Mary and Martha, you might know them. They're the sisters of Lazarus. We know in the scriptures and elsewhere that in John, we read that these are some of Jesus' best friends. So, he want, so he's going to their house. And uh, so as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, so it's not just Jesus coming to their house. It is Jesus and his 12 loud, burly, starving uh, friends, his disciples, as they were on their way, he came to a village, Bethany, where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. Cue music. Cue the butterflies. Cue the picture of perfect person up on the screen. The straight A student, Mary. The valedictorian. Your sister who you hate because she's perfect. <laughs> sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, um, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? This is where triangulation was created on the eighth day. Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, Jesus Answered, you're worried and upset about many things. Raise your hand if you're worried and upset about many things right now in this very moment. Okay? So now we're in the story. Now we're not just reading the story. We're in it. A few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what's better and it will not be taken away from her. So, everyone who raised their hand, you're worried, you're busy, you're anxious about many things, how does that story make you feel? Judged? Like, great, even the Bible likes Mary better than me. <laughs> right? We see Mary, cue the butterflies, cue the graduation song, cue the perfect sibling that is just perfect in every way and the parents like her and God likes her more than you. And then there's you. And you're in the kitchen making the soup. You're chopping the onions. You're burning your fingers on taking the pan uh, out, out of the oven. And in your mind, you're going, you're killing me. Mary, is this story about saying one person is better while the other person is worse? So if you're a Martha, man, you better learn how to spend a little bit more time at the feet of Jesus so you better get up earlier and get that cooking done beforehand, adding lots of responsibilities to your plate so that you can be more like Mary. Cue the butterflies in the Anne of Green Gables movies. Or is it about something much more delicious? When we read the text, it's very interesting. And, and see, the writers of the, of the scriptures, they, they give hints and nods that in Western culture, we miss, but in Eastern culture, they wouldn't have missed the fact that right at the beginning of the story, we read that Jesus was going to whose house? Remember? Jesus, we read, was going to Martha's house. Not Mary and Martha's house. Not Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house. Jesus was going to Jerusalem. But then the camera focuses 
but he's passing through Bethany and he's going to a home to visit who? Martha. The whole direction of this story is Jesus toward Martha. Now, when he gets there, he and his, you know, 12 friends and maybe others, for some reason, he steals a little time with Mary, right? And let's not be too hard on Mary either. You know, even perfect sisters need some love and grace and grace and peace as well. So Jesus is stealing some time with Mary. But the story is not about Mary. The story is not putting Mary as the perfect person alongside Martha, the person who needs to learn a lot. The story is Jesus is moving toward Martha. So the question you should have in your mind is, how in the world is a person like Martha, how does that person accept Jesus into her home. If you raised your hand and said, yeah, I'm busy, I'm anxious, I'm worried about a lot of things, the question you should have is not, how can I be more like Mary? It's, how does Jesus want to visit me today? In what way does Jesus want to move toward me today? Because this is the direction of this passage. So I, I see a couple things happening here. Number one, we read, and the writer's very intent on this, that Martha invites Jesus into her home. She's making a meal for Jesus, making a meal for his disciples. And um, what Martha is doing is very good work. Have you ever had someone over to your house? Have you ever cooked for them? And have you ever laid out a table for them that is just awesome and, 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 and beautiful? And then as you're eating, People go, man, this is such great food and I love being with you. That's an important thing that you're doing. It's one of the most beautiful uh, expressions of love that you can offer someone. So what Martha is doing is very, very important. And you get the sense that even though she's worried and busy, this is what she likes to do. But she invites Jesus into her home. And the word for invites here in the Greek, hupodekomai is the word, which is sort of a fun word. It's two words put together. That's what happens in the Greek a lot. Two words get jammed together. Hupo means underneath. And dekomai means to grant access. To take someone by the hand and grant them access into a place. So when we read in the beginning that Martha was inviting Jesus into her home, how I think the writer wants us to hear that is Martha was granting access to Jesus. Not just into her home, but into her actual soul, into her life. Into, and I'm not talking about like she's praying the prayer of salvation right now. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. That's important. That's a different talk. What I'm talking about is being a kind of person who opens their soul up so Jesus can come in and who opens their soul up as messy as it actually is. So walk with me into the pantry, would you? Remember the pantry? That's the place you escape to when you're a parent. That's where your stash is. Close the door and with a mouth full of dark chocolate, imagine saying to Jesus, okay, this is how it actually is around here. I need some grace and I need some peace and I need you to come all the way into this. 
I don't have time to sit with you at your feet right now. I'm so sorry, Jesus. I'm getting three hours of sleep a night because my kid is crying and I can't get up at six in the morning to do a quiet time. I need you, Jesus, to meet me with your grace and your peace right here in the pantry and I have a mouthful of dark chocolate. I don't even have time to get the chocolate down. I just need you to come right here and right now and granting access, granting Jesus access into your actual life is a whole lot more like that. Inviting him into those messy and scary moments. And Martha does it. And I think it's really beautiful. So question, what's your pantry? You know what I mean? What's your pantry? What's the place where you run to to escape the craziness? Now can you imagine, instead of running away from God in that moment, can you imagine hupodecomying, taking Jesus by the hand and granting him access to your pantry? where it's a little ugly and messy and saying, Jesus, here I am. I need your grace and peace or I'm not going to make it one more moment. Does that sound like good news to anyone? Let's bring him into the pantry. That's the direction Jesus is, is, is going in this story and in our lives. So that's the first thing I notice in this story is that Martha does it. Martha invites Jesus. And so you might be like, well, that sounds weird because it doesn't really sound like she does. I mean, she's yelling at him. Remember what she says? So this is the second thing I notice. That Martha is utterly honest with Jesus, right? Remember what she says to Jesus? Hey, tell my sister to get her booty in the kitchen and help me. Now, question. Have you ever talked to a guest in your home like that before? Who does that? <laughs> now, you may bang a cupboard or two. <laughs> you know? But you're not going to yell at your guests, are you? Martha yells at Jesus. She doesn't even go after Mary. She goes right to Jesus. What does this say about their relationship? Yes, you, you said it. They're very close. You said it too. What does it mean to have a relationship with the God who created you that is so honest that you can kind of be inappropriate even sometimes? You know, I, remember, I mean, I can imagine later as they're chopping onions together in the kitchen because this is how I imagine the story ends is Jesus walks into the kitchen and they're having this conversation as he's, you know, he's pressing garlic and he's pouring the olive oil and they're talking and, you know, Mary's over there, you know, butterflies. And, mm. But they're having the conversation in the kitchen where Martha lives, basically. Because they're really, really close. Now the word, uh, it's, so, it's so interesting. The word for what Martha does with Jesus, it's again two words. Perispao, peri means around and spao means to draw one's sword. So Martha is actually sparring with Jesus in this moment. I mean, she is, have you ever felt like that with, with, with God? Like, hey, it's go time right now because my life is not going well and I need some help and all my prayers and all my stuff, that's not working. So I just need to be real honest with you right now. 
I remember one time um, when I applied for this job, this was years ago, I applied for a job I really wanted. It was a really long process. I thought I was going to get it. Got down to two people. They offered the other person the job. Um, and I remember sitting in front of this green ottoman uh, in my living room and just imagining there's Jesus sitting there. And I go, you know what? The ball's in your court now. That's what I said <laughs> to God. Uh, like, apparently we were playing tennis, you know? The ball's in your court. Like, where, where, was it in my court for a while? Anyway. But the beautiful thing is we can do that with the God who brings us grace and peace because the story of scriptures is that Jesus is always moving toward us. That's the story of, when, of the incarnation, when God left heaven to become a human being. Jesus is moving toward you at every moment of the day. Moving toward you into the pantry, into the car, into the, in, at, at work. And he's moving toward you with an invitation. And he gave Martha an invitation. So let's notice what he did. So they're chopping onions. They're getting the soup ready. They're pouring the olive oil over the hummus. They're putting salt in it, making sure the pita is nice and warm. Now we're getting toward lunch. People are hungry. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, really only one thing matters. And he says, and you know, Mary has chosen the better thing. And I don't think he's saying, Mary's better, you're not. I think what he's saying is, Martha, when you called out to me, have Mary help me. Uh, you missed a moment because you could have asked me to help you and I would have. I think that's the one thing that, that matters because we don't know how Mary and Jesus ended up in the hearth room or wherever it is that they were, but my guess is Mary actually had the audacity to say, hey Jesus, you got a second? Because I really need some help. So they were sitting there and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, Martha, Martha, you, what you could have done is actually helped me, asked me to come into the kitchen and chop onions with you, and I would have, because that's what I do. I've been moving toward you this whole day. I've come to eat with you. I've come to be with you. I've come to do, to enter into your world. So what would it look like for you? The way that you're wired up, whether it be more of a contemplative Mary type or more of an active Martha type, what would it mean for you to invite Jesus to come meet you in your kitchen, so to speak? Where you work, doing what you do, in the pantry, in the middle of anxiety. What would it be like to not compare yourself to other people? Because this is the temptation of this passage. We're, we're tempted to have Martha compare herself to Mary. And Mary is the perfect one, or so we read this text. And if we read it that way, we're, we're missing the whole point. And if you as a parent are comparing yourself to all the Facebook pictures that are out there, hey, we went to Disney World with all three of our kids, and we had a blast every day. It was awesome. Even in the minivan all the way down there. <laughs> we were singing together, and the kids were great. You know, it's, but that's, and so that's the Facebook world. Now let's enter into the real world where the minivan smells like puke after the first 12 hours 
There's french fries all over the place. You've totally given up on any idea of healthy eating. You get down to Disney World, you're totally exhausted because you haven't slept in two days. One of your kids gets sick and doesn't sleep. The other kid, all he wants to do is swim in the hotel pool, doesn't even want to go to Disney World, <laughs> which you've spent all the money for. What would it be like to invite Jesus into that picture, not the Facebook picture? Because Jesus is moving toward that picture because that's the real one. So, what would it mean for you to believe that Jesus is moving toward you? He's moving toward your sister too, but he's really moving toward you. Toward the actual person that actually exists in the actual universe. Toward the person that loses it and is anxious and maybe is a perfectionist. And what would it be like for you to open up your soul and give Jesus access to that place that you're so embarrassed to show anyone else? Jesus knows it. Jesus sees it. And Jesus likes you anyway. Jesus thinks it's sort of, you know, it's like, oh man, let me, let me come into your kitchen. I mean, I swear, I will not berate you. I will not judge you. I just want to be with you and help you to move through the craziness. Jesus will invite you, if you need to, to spar with him, to yell at him, to say inappropriate things to him, if that's how you feel, so that Jesus can come offering you grace and peace in the middle of the craziness. That's the direction of this story, and that's the direction of Jesus toward you every single day of your life. So let's take 60 seconds, okay? We're going to do a crazy experiment in the life of large church culture and have 60 seconds of absolute silence. And I want to invite God to come and speak to you. And I want to invite you just to say, God, I am opening my soul wide to you. Come in and see the mess. And allow Jesus to speak a word of invitation to you. And this, I'll just, I'm not going to talk for 60 entire seconds. So let's pray. Close your eyes. Lord, we invite you in and we invite you to come speak to us and give us the invitation that we need to hear right now in our actual lives. And God, we thank you for your grace and for your peace. We thank you that those two things uphold us in our moments of craziness. We thank you that we can't create those things, we can just receive them. So I pray, and to every worried, anxious, nervous, perfectionistic heart right now, I pray a supernatural bestowing of your grace, your unmerited favor, your gift, and also a gift of peace, that in the middle of chaos, we would experience the wholeness that you are with us, and you're never letting us go. In your name, amen.